All right, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 557. So just uh, hit the middle of the Bible. You'll probably hit Psalms and uh, turn toward the end, the New Testament, and you'll run into Ecclesiastes. But if you're using the, the Bibles we provide for you, that'll be on page 557. Uh, and as you turn there, I want to tell you about an experience I had uh, the second year of grad school for me. Um, it really was a, a major revolution in my life. And you might say, well, what on earth you know, was going on there? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't a spiritual revolution. It wasn't an emotional revolution. It was actually uh, a completely physical revolution, all right? And, and no, I, I didn't get jacked, all right? Like, uh, you know, Peter and Enzo, a couple guys that are here today. Um, that's pretty apparent. Um, I, uh, I, I, so here, here's what happened, okay? I'm, uh, I'm, I think if my memory serves me correctly, I'm, I'm driving home from uh, Kentucky back to school uh, at seminary there outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And as I'm coming back, I'm just kind of realizing finally that uh, all of the road signs are pretty difficult to read until I get, you know, almost right up on them. And I can say, oh yeah, this is where, you know, that... Uh, exit is. And, and so I get back and some, after some encouragement from some friends, they say, you need to go get your eyes checked out, you know? And, uh, and so I go uh, get a vision test to, to no one's surprise. Dr. Eileen Walsh tells me, uh, yeah, we've got a problem here. I can't believe that you haven't had a vision test before now, but you are myopic. I'm saying my, my what? what? What's that? Myopic. It means you're nearsighted. It means that you can see what's in front of you really clearly, but what, that which is at a distance is going to be significantly more difficult for you to, to see with much clarity. And so, uh, so, so she gives me some corrective lenses, and I want to tell you that the moment I stepped out of that uh, doctor's office, it was as if I had stepped into a whole new world. I mean, can anyone identify with me, maybe who has, you know, glasses, contacts? I mean, it's like a whole new world. It was as if I was seeing the world in high definition. You know what I'm saying? I mean, every, every branch of every tree and every leaf, I could just see so perfectly. It's defined and clear and crisp. I mean, lights, it was, I apparently had an, an evening appointment because I can remember, by the way, it was a Target, okay? A Target, you know little optometry or how you say that. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm walking out of Target into the parking lot and the, the, you know, the trees catch me first and then the stars are like, I can count thousands of stars now that were never there before. And then I look and I'm seeing these neon lights that are just bam, you know, in my face. And I'm thinking, wow, what an amazing revolution this is for me. Right? And, uh, and you know, it's just a kind of maybe take my experience there and turn it into a parable of sorts. I want you to think about this. Oftentimes in life, okay, and this is, it doesn't matter what your background is, if, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're kind of exploring Christianity, it doesn't really matter. I think most of us would, would probably identify with the, the reality that oftentimes we, we see what's in front of us more clearly than that which is in the distance, I mean, it's easier for us to kind of get focused on the here and now and, and maybe miss the there and then, right? 
And, and, and what I want to encourage us with this morning, and I think what Ecclesiastes 9 is going to teach us, is that if, if we would more clearly see, clearly apprehend that which is in the distance, it would have revolutionary potential for how we live our lives in the present. Okay? So that's where we're going in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I want us to, to look at what it means to enjoy life with the end in view. And this is where we're going. So Ecclesiastes 9, I just want to read uh, the first, the first uh, verse for us. And this is, what, this is how he starts. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And we'll just stop right there. Notice that in verse one, he says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. Now we're in chapter nine. Maybe some of you are kind of new with us. Let's just review for a minute where we've been. The book of Ecclesiastes is about, is about this, this king, this king figure who is on a quest to find, discover meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. And he spares no expense to this quest. I mean, he's the king after all. So he has unlimited resources at his disposal. And so we can see that his, his whole heart is in it. This is, this is a wholehearted quest that he is after to, to find that which satisfies. And we've already seen that he, is, he has kind of gone down the laundry list, man. You know, money, sex, pleasure, power, wisdom, work, you fill in the blank. He has been there, done that, and he is saying, you know what? This is, this is how it works. If you're looking for ultimate satisfaction in any of those pursuits, it is going to be like going out this afternoon and trying to grab the wind. It is an exercise in futility. He's saying it is a vain, empty, meaningless pursuit. But along the way in this journey, as he's seeking to, to find a re reason to live in this unreasonable world, he's still a wise teacher. He has wisdom to pass on to his hearers. And, and, and what he's going to, to teach us this morning is that we should live life to the full. Live life to the full, understanding the preciousness of time. And in the first six verses, this is what he's going he's gonna, to uh, hit us with in the beginning. He's going to encourage us to wrestle with the reality of death. Okay, so, so we already read verse 1. Let me pick up in, in verse 2. He's saying, the righteous, the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. How it's all going to turn out. Uh, is it going to be pleasant or, or unpleasant? You know, it's, it's, it's not quite certain, but we do know that the righteous are in the hands of God. But, but then he says, what we don't know, you know, if, if there's going to be good or bad happening in life, what, what we do know, there's one thing that's certain, and that is, of course, death. And this is where he picks up in verse 2. Check it out. He says, it is the same for all. Since, all. since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to 
the dead. Okay, so just a few things on death. And by the way, uh, if you have been journeying with us through Ecclesiastes, you already know that this refrain keeps coming up again and again and again and again. Chapter two, three, five, six, seven, eight. And now finally, we finally are to his final thoughts in chapter nine on this reality of death. And I mean, after all, Ecclesiastes is a pretty pessimistic book on the surface, right? I mean, it's like everything is vain. Your life is empty. It's all for naught. And then he kind of just piles it on with all of this morbid talk about death, right? But it's good for us to wrestle with the reality of death. What he's going to say is, is death is inevitable. Verse 2, these categories that he, that he lays out. He's saying the same fate comes to all of us, the moral, the immoral, the religious, the irreligious, the rich, the poor, ballers and nerds. It doesn't matter. It's all coming for us. Death is certain. It's inevitable. But, but then he, he changes gears a bit in verse three and he lets us know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Okay, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Why is the reality of death and the reality of sin uh, in this world so evil? It's because... This is not the way that God intended for his world to be in the beginning. And if you question that, just go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. Sin and death are nowhere in the picture. But then in Genesis 3, sin and consequently death enter into the picture. And it has been a reality that we have to deal with, both spiritual death and physical death ever since. Now here's the deal. God being so rich in mercy, being so incredibly loving, does not leave us in our sin and death, but he sends us on Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And what's so significant about the cross, this is why we're so uh, focused on the gospel here as a church, is because the death of death happens in the death of Christ. You got that? And this is, this is not just a personal spiritual reality. This is, and this is kind of deep in stuff here. This is a cosmic reality. We, we saw this in Colossians, by the way, okay? So if you weren't here, you can kind of go back. This is where we were in the fall. You can go to our podcast, all right? We have seven subscribers right now, I think. Don't, don't, don't hate on us, okay? I'm sure if John was preaching more, we'd have at least nine. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> But what did, what, did we, what did we see, and speaking of not knowing what was coming, uh, what do we see in Colossians? He says that, that, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death so that he might reconcile people to God, bring them back to God. But then he says in chapter one that it's not just us, but it's all things, all things will be reunited in him. And what does that mean? It means that this fallen and broken and sin sick world full of tragedy and hurt and suffering, that all of this will be one day made right. As it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. Sin and death will be no more. The complete restoration of all things will come when Christ returns. So this is good news for us. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. But you say, that sounds really good, Tanner, but what about today? You know, we're not there yet. What about today? 
And the third thing I want you to see in these early verses is this, is that that not only is death inevitable and and death is, is not the way it's supposed to be, but death should push us to life. Death should push us to life. Look at verses four through six. I know you're saying, dude, Tanner, what are you talking about, man? Death pushes us to life. What is that? Well, read verses four through six with me. This is what he says. He says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And so here's what I think we'll see. Okay. Don't, don't miss the end of verse six here. It's saying, look, you know, our life, we're going to perish and forever there will be no more share in life under the sun. Now this kind of gets tricky theologically here because we, we understand that, that what the preacher is doing here is he is focused on the horizon of this life under the sun. Okay, this one shot that we have to live life under the sun, he's not looking above the sun. In other words, he's not looking to this eternal plan that God has at this moment. I mean, he, he does at times in the book but he's just trying to kind of give a wake-up call to these people, right? He's saying, hey, death is coming. You only have one shot. And so the encouragement is to live life to the full while you have the time. This is where he's going in, 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 in four through six. I mean, he is, he is saying here, look, you're gonna have no more share under the sun. The game will be over. The end of the story will be written. And the fat lady will have sung one day, Right? And when you look back, I mean, what are you going to have to show for your life? How will you spend your life? Death can teach us so much. And I want us to focus on a couple of benefits of, of wrestling with the reality of death. Because when we, when we see that death is certain and it's coming, then hopefully when, we, when we're not so myopic and nearsighted, and how we're living our life, then perhaps we will see the end more clearly, which will affect how we live today. And we will start to value what really is valuable. We'll give priority to that which is most important. We will live our life with kind of not this casual approach, man, everything's all good. I'm gonna just chill kind of through the whole deal. But I mean, we'll live our life with a sense of urgency. We have one shot at this thing. And God wants us to maximize it and live it to the full. So as we think about living life with a a sense of urgency and making our lives count, this is what Paul was referring to in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. What does he say? He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So so, so do do you hear that? I mean, day in, day out, are you, are you striving to make the most of your time? To make the best use of, use of it? This is what Jonathan Edwards, there's a couple of guys that, that I, I, I meet with quite frequently. We, we read this old uh, discourse by Jonathan Edwards. Okay, Edwards was a, was a pastor up here in Massachusetts back in the 18th century. He penned this discourse called The Preciousness of Time in uh, 1734, all right? And he, and he has a lot to reflect on how we should be spending our time. He gives a lot of motivations there. But listen to what he wrote in, in, uh, in this work. He says this, 
There is nothing more precious and yet nothing of which men are more prodigal. Right? You say, what is that? It's, and it means that we would be recklessly wasteful with how we spend our time. We're prodigal with it. So there's nothing more precious than time. Yet there's nothing of which men are more prodigal. If men were as lavish of their money as they are of their time, if it were as a common thing for them to throw away their money as it is for them to throw away their time, we should think them beside themselves and not in possession of their right minds. Yet time is a thousand times more precious than money. And when it is gone, cannot be purchased for money, cannot be redeemed by silver or gold. And so as we think about the reality of death, and as we look at living life to the full in the present, I mean, are you treating time like this as if it were not just gold or silver or 1,000 shares of apple, you know, but it's even greater than that. I mean, no one is going to be walking down Medford Square this afternoon and take out their wallet and just throw dollar bills on the ground, right? It's just not, it's not happening, right? We're not that lavish. We're not that wasteful. And we're just saying, if, if, if that's true with money, how much more should it be true of the way we spend our time? You so say, Tanner, how, how, do you, how do you redeem your time? How do you improve it? How do you make the most of it? And here's just a few thoughts. I mean, number one, commit everything you do to God. If everything is, is for his glory, if everything is, if that's the end that everything is pushing toward, then how about whatever it is, whether we're, we're eating a, or drinking a meal, whether it is we're, we're going to work, whether it is we're having that conversation with a friend, how about committing all those things to God? And a very simple way we can do that is simply by prayer. You know what I'm saying? Just pray, just ask God, pray before that uh, engagement, pray during that time, pray after that time, just pray and give it to God. Another encouragement would be to, to ruthlessly evaluate your calendar. I mean, what is, what is your, because I can tell you, what your calendar looks like is gonna tell us a whole lot about what you value and how precious you treat time. And so evaluate it. Make sure that, I mean, hey, look, I'm not saying leisure is bad, okay? So don't hear me saying that this morning, all right? Leisure and rest can be very, very good. But let's be honest, how many of us, if, as we look at our week and as, whether it's, you know, the commute to work, whether it's the time that we spend in entertainment, you know, you fill in the blank technology, how much of that is just a mindless waste that really doesn't serve us or the kingdom of God all that well? So when we, when we come to grips with the reality of death, it should push us toward life. It should push us toward making the most of the days that God gives us. And just one final encouragement there. This is from Edwards too. He says this, Satan deceives us in two ways. And we need to hear this, okay? He said, Satan deceives us in two ways. To the young, what does he say? You're so young. You have so much time ahead of you. Why bother with seeking to make the most of your time? Just chill. But to the old, what does he say? He says, man, so much of your life is past. You have so little time left. Why bother 
with making the most of it. And this is how Satan deceives us. And if we look up to Christ and we see how he values things, we're gonna seek and strive to make most of our time. So the first encouragement this morning deals with gaining a clearer handle on the end of our life. But then in verses seven through 10, what's gonna happen is we're gonna see, hey, it's really important to, to gain a, a clear handle on how we should live in the present. And it's almost like he's saying, look, in light of the reality of death, how about this? How about you enjoy the everyday experiences of life? There's your second point. Enjoy the everyday experiences of life. He begins in verse seven, check it out. He says, go. As if this is kind of a wake up call here. Hey, wake up, get about the business of enjoying life with the quickness. Let's make this happen. And then what he's gonna do, trekking down through verse 10 is he's gonna give us four ways, all right? And notice these are commands, by the way. This is commanded enjoyment, commanded joy. And he's gonna give us four ways that we can enjoy the everyday experiences of life. Let me give them to you. Number one, have a good meal. Look at uh, verse seven again. Go eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. All right, so, so go eat your bread, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now I know some of you may be on kind of this no carb, low carb diet, all right? Some of you may not be wine drinkers. You might be tea or coffee or Coke or whatever. Vitamin, water, came, never mind. Um, it's not the, so much the point of what, it's, it's the fact that we all need food and drink to sustain ourselves, right? And so he's saying, enjoy it. And this even perhaps get, gets at the way we eat a meal. Okay, think about this. Now, I don't know if any of you are like my dad, okay? But my dad... It's like I'm on my fourth bite and I'm looking over across the table and this man is done. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he has just, he has devoured his food. He, he has a rule. Like, I mean, he will not take a drink. This is weird, okay? Don't tell him I told you this. Um, he won't even take a drink until he's finished his meal. All right? Now, he would tell you he's enjoying it. But, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, the, the preacher here is saying, look, enjoy a good meal. Sit down and enjoy it. Sip on that drink. Don't just... Go up and down all the time. Enjoy this, this, this gift of, of food. And, and it doesn't look, it doesn't matter. Maybe we have some Food Network junkies here. It doesn't matter. You know, this is a great city for food, by the way. I mean, if it's American, you know, Italian, uh, Indian, Chinese, you name it. Thai, yeah, I like Thai too. Um, it's all good with God, Okay. And, and how do we know that? I mean, it says that for God has already approved of what you do. And so you're thinking, well, that's good. Yeah, we need, we need food to survive, but, 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 but maybe there's more to it than just that. Again, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, what do we find? That, that, that God has made a, a lavish world, a, a creative world. He's given us a variety of foods to enjoy. And food is actually really important to God. In fact, when the end comes, it says that we're gonna sit down with Jesus and have a huge meal and it's gonna be unbelievable. So let's, let's picture that now, today, and how we go about eating and drinking. And, and here's just one other observation on this, this idea of having a good meal. Here, here's one way to even make that better. Do it with some good company. Enjoy some time with friends, man. Sit down, practice hospitality, go out with your friends and have some good conversation 
and realize that that's one of the ways that God gifts us in this life as we go through it to, to enjoy life and enjoy it with our friends. It's one of his gifts. Number two, this one's kind of off for maybe some of you. Uh, rock some reflective gear. All right, that just means like wear, uh, put on some reflective gear, all right? Um, yeah, so, 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 so what do we mean by that? Okay, this is not Aaron King, all right, training for the marathon, you know, with his vest and his, you know, pants, his runner's pants, so that it, it, like late at night or in the morning, you know, he's got his reflectors on, so, you know, everyone sees him there. All right, well, what is, what is verse eight getting at? Let's, let's check it out. He says, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. See, the, the idea of white garments and oil on our head get at the idea that our clothes and our appearance should be reflective of what's going on on the inside. And you say, well, how do you, how do you, how do you get this from, you know, Scripture? Well, in ancient times, when people were just distraught and going through it and maybe have rebelled against God and, and, and things were not good, they would put on sackcloth and put ashes on their head, and you would know, man, things are not well with them. But on the flip side of that, when they had joy, they would put on garments of, of white. And they would put oil on their head. I mean, just think, you know, like take a shower in the morning, all right? Put some, put some lotion maybe on. Maybe ladies do more than guys, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but, but, but make yourself presentable and enjoy the day. That's basically what he's saying. But, but he's saying here, look, how you, how you dress in your appearance should reflect what is, what is going on with you on the inside. Does that make sense? And so I know that some people take pride in kind of trying to look like a slob, all right? Maybe you have some friends, maybe some of you college students can kind of identify with that. You know, that guy in your class that just comes in and is just looking all, you know, whatever. Um, but but that's, that's another encouragement about enjoying the everyday experiences of life. Uh, here's number three. Enjoy life with a good wife, all right? Enjoy life with a good wife. Look at verse nine. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Okay, so, so he is addressing husbands here, but obviously, uh, wives, this would certainly apply to your husband as well. All right, and, and against popular opinion, maybe popular culture, marriage is a gift from God that is to be enjoyed. Okay, so, so God, listen again, kind of going back again and again. Genesis 1, God made us in his image. He made us with his capacity for relationality, all right? And he made us for deep relationships. And horizontally speaking, the, 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 the marriage relationship is the most important one that God has ordained under the sun, all right? So horizontally speaking, obviously our relationship with him is first and foremost. That's why we say we would counsel maybe singles and, and college students and those that have not entered into this stage of life yet, if this is what God has for you, that the person whom you marry is the second most important decision that you'll ever make in your life aside from committing to follow Christ and love Christ with your life. And so this is, this is a very important uh, reality that we, we need to give attention to. But what he says is he says enjoy Enjoy your spouse, that, that, that they are your portion in life. And just think on that for a minute. What, what would maybe be a practical encouragement there? Well, the best of your time, 
the best of your energy, the best of your love, the best of your conversation, the best of your faithfulness, give it to your spouse. Don't give it to anyone else. It's your spouse that deserves that place in your life, that you are giving them the absolute best that you have because they're a gift from God. So that's, that's stated positively. Um, you might have also noticed that he says, and in all your toil, at which you toil under the sun. It, it seems that, okay, this can get a little dicey here, but it seems that he is connecting marriage with work. All right, and for those of you who have been married for any length of time, you know that marriage is work. It's work. Now, some of you may be engaged. Some of you may not even be engaged yet. That's cool. But you might have this kind of utopian vision of marriage as if everything is just kind of wake up and it's a walk in the park. But that's just not the way it is, right? I mean, can I, can I get a witness from any of our married couples there? It takes, yes, okay. It takes some work. <laughs> so let's, here, let's work not only as hard, but even harder in our marriages as we do our vocation. How about that? You say, well, how do you, can you measure that? I mean, look, qualitatively speaking, I mean, maybe quantitatively, you're you know, putting in your hours at work, but, but, but the time that you have with your wife, strive to have as much time as you can have. Glorify God together and, and uh, really maximize that time with him or her. That's the third encouragement. And then speaking of work, he's going to say in verse 10, work hard on the job. Work hard on the job. Check out verse 10. He says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And so here we have an encouragement to whatever task you have, whatever your vocation may be, if you're a student, great. If, if, you're, if you're looking for a job, that's your work, right? I mean, you, but, but to do it with all of your might. If, we, if, we, if we're being honest, we look in the mirror, we'd have to say, you know, there are times where we are prone to being lazy, right? There are times when we are prone to maybe college students, finals week, you guys are wrapping up. I mean, has the procrastination bug like bit you hard this week? That project that you were putting off, that, you know, extra four or five hours of study that you needed to do when you went out socializing with your friends and then all of a sudden, man, you're like stressed out and you're, you know, sipping extra cups of coffee to stay up to cram it all in, right? And so, so the preacher says, look, work hard. Do it with all of your might. Display commitment and passion on the job. And why is this so important? Because look, a time is coming when it will all be said and done. Once again, he says there's, there's no, what does he say in verse 10? There's no work, no thought, no knowledge, no wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And, and simply put, Sheol in the Jewish mind was the place of the dead. Again, he's, he's viewing life under the sun and he's saying, you know what? You better make the most of it because one day the, the clock is ticking and the ticks will run out. So let me now summarize the, the point of verses seven through 10. You ready for this? Here it is. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. This life that God gives, no matter what it is that you're doing, we, especially we who know God and have found Christ, should have joy in our lives. 
Jesus came and Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus was raised so that we might have life. And as John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to still kill and destroy. But look, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. So of all people, man, we should have a lot of joy in our life. We should enjoy what we do. People should be able to look at us and see there's something different about us because we actually enjoy work. We actually enjoy being married. We actually enjoy a good meal. We enjoy other people's company. And on and on we could go. There are only four that he gives us here, but they're pretty good four. And so this is gonna be found in Christ. This is, you're not gonna find this, by the way, I found this online this week. There is, all right, S-O-H-S, yep, dot com, the secret society uh, I'm sorry, it's not a secret. Yeah, it is a secret society. The secret society of happy people. There are, there are over 34, there are, no, no, there are thousands of members in, in over 34 countries. That's what they claim. And, and listen, this is their mission, by the way. Um, they, they encourage the expression of happiness and discourage parade reigning, all right? And, and parade reigners are those people who don't want to hear your happy news. Got that? <laughs> So, so, so wait, you've got you've to you've hear this. Their motto, you ready for this? Their motto, if you're happy and you know it, tell somebody. <laughs> if someone is happy and they know it, listen. There you go. So uh, you can probably join that if you'd like, all right? But uh, the point of the sermon is that you don't need to join that crew because all you need to do is get connected with Jesus. And he's going to give you so much more joy than you could find in some silly secret society of happiness, right? Whatever, whatever that is, all right? So, so he says, look, wrestle with the reality of death. Enjoy the everyday experiences of life. And then, and then finally, he says, go hard after the prized possession of wisdom. And we're going to move through these final verses quickly. Look at verse 11. He says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Here's what we have here. Sometimes we get the breaks. Sometimes we miss the breaks. Sometimes calamity will befall us. But there is a sovereign God who has over all the details, circumstances, and events of our lives. And again, he's reflecting on this fallen world that we live in. Now verse 13. I have also seen this example under the sun. This is an example of wisdom. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though that poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Here's, here's how we're wrapping up today, okay? 
the encouragement. Go after the prized possession of wisdom. And you say, oh, how can you kind of tie this together with the whole deal? Well, when we walk in wisdom, remember what Paul says, walk as wise, not as unwise, making the most of the time. So the wise person is going to be someone who understands the reality of death and is seeking to enjoy life in the present to the glory of God. So, so this, this idea of going after wisdom because wisdom is better than might, wisdom should influence everything in your life. It should influence your relationships, your work, your leisure time, your eating and drinking, whatever it is, we are invited to walk the path of wisdom, which is, which is really what this book is, is all about. And, and he gives this example. Don't miss it. He says, there is a, a little city with a few people in it, okay? And he draws this contrast. He says that there is a great king that is besieging the city, and he has great siege works that he is piling up around the city. And yet there is this poor man. Yet he is a wise man. And he comes up with the scheme to deliver the city from those who surround them. And what is he saying? He is saying, look, there is a surprising superiority to wisdom. And you need to go after it. And you need to find it. Because just a little wisdom and quiet is better than the shouting of a king in the company of fools. And so are you, are you living with this kind of wisdom? Do you know the wisdom of God? I mean, are you seeking to live your life according to God's intentions? That's wisdom. That's a great definition of wisdom, by the way. Living life according to God's intentions. Would, would this characterize your life? Are you tracking with the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 9 when he's saying, look, you better live your life with clear vision and see what is coming in the end and allow that to influence the way that you live today. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. For me, I got those corrective lenses when I was 24, but I probably needed them since I was about 18 or 19. I mean, I can look back and, and, and think about being in a sporting event with my family and looking across, they would say, hey, do you see that person on the other side of the, the, the gymnasium? I was like, how can you see those people? But it never, it never clicked. So I'm going month after month, year after year with, you know, kind of getting by vision, but not clear vision. And perhaps that's the same for you today. I mean, spiritually speaking, you know, you, you may kind of think you're there, but, but look, if, if you're not connected to Christ or if you're not connected, consistently connecting yourself to Christ, then perhaps your vision is, is blurred and fuzzy and, and, and just turning back to God, placing your faith and trust in, in Christ, whether that's for the first time or for the thousandth time, that is where clarity of vision is found. That is where wisdom is found. And so that's how I want to pray for us as we wrap up our time together here this morning. Let's, let's pray. God, would you help us to see how clear we really see? It's kind of a funny prayer, Lord. Only, only you can do that. And so, Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would show us, Lord, how great you are, how holy you are, how valuable you are, how worthy you are. And, Lord, we, we ask that, that you would uh, change us and that you would cause us to live our days differently and that, that we would live with this kind of rare joy that is available to those in Christ. So Father, I pray for my friends here today. God, I pray for 
those who are in the faith and maybe those who are considering the faith. Um, Lord, would you, would you convince them that your word is true and that life is found in you, abundant, joy-filled life is found in you. God, how we need you. Lord, make it true, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.